Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the weekly review. I'm joined today by Tony D'Onofrio and Tom Meehan and our producer, Diego Rodriguez. And today we're going to take a quick trip around the world, talk about a few issues, and we'll start off as we have during this global pandemic, talking a little bit about the coronavirus. Um, We know that the uh, Omicron variant is now continuing to spread. A new UK study showing it's spreading much more rapidly than Delta and Delta Plus throughout the UK. Um, A UK advisor so far looking at some of the evidence from South Africa uh, and other places that er had a little bit earlier sequencing and identification of this variant reported in some ways that uh, thankfully this this particular brand of the coronavirus may not be as virulent or create as much serious disease uh, as the Delta or Delta Plus variants that we've seen in the past and maybe others. Um, so this is where we talk about keeping our fingers crossed. This may be where at some point uh, what it could look like in the future where we, we still unfortunately have this particular virus uh, and it's different variants that come along. But potentially maybe less virulent. Uh, but but nevertheless, is so transmissible um, and seems to be, again, we talked about some of the mutations much more rapidly uh, and completely able to evade some of our natural immune responses, whether uh, we are naive, have not been infected, or we have been infected by an earlier variant uh, or another variant, uh, or have been vaccinated with one or more of the different vaccines that are currently available for this. Um, but again, if we've got minimal or or at least less serious disease, then that could be, of course, very encouraging. Um, more studies are are attempting around the world. I'm reading about in studies trying to to better understand antibody. Um, and cellular responses. We've talked about that many, many times. What the research is showing, uh, at least from our interpretation here, is non-physicians um, or medical scientists. Um, but cellular responses, we've talked about B and T cells and so on, um, uh, are particularly interesting to see uh, initial and more sustained uh, immunity that might be uh, available to us. Again, whether uh, natural infection uh, as a result of natural infection or from vaccines or in, in many cases and in a growing number of cases, uh, both. So um, there are also some interesting studies out there around why is obesity a, a red flag for potentially more severe, serious, severe disease from coronavirus infection. Um, and it seems to be that, the, that our fat tissue plays a role. Um, and that, that that tissue is, in fact, uh, attacked by the coronavirus in a, in a variety of ways, different mechanisms that uh, I'm going to be reading more about. We can see if that's relevant. Um, on the prevention front, uh, again, um, 
you know, more and more studies trying to understand masking dynamics um, and cutting viral particles that that any of us might emit through normal speech, singing, coughing, sneezing, and so forth. Um, so uh, more to come, but it still seems to be a, a safe and effective way uh, to protect from infection uh, or to cut the infection risk for the person on the other end. And then again, if both parties are masked. So I know there's pushback and resistance to masking, certainly masking mandates. And I think you know, the more we, we think about, we read, uh, listen to podcasts and everything else that's going on around the research, the science part, um, uh, it seems to be what seems to be safe, first of all, but effective. Um, and in what combination we talk about, again, in criminology, about dosing a lot, a lot. It's not what, but how we do things and the same thing here. Um, but then there's sort of the uh, our, our individual or group freedoms and the political side of that, or in other words, our elected or uh, officials, the lawmakers, as well as those that are the policymakers um, at the different strata of government that we have here, um, you know, what do they mandate? And that, that seems to be somewhat of a difference. Um, and I think it's the differential application of mandates. It seemed to be uh, a part of the serious concern. But I think at the end of the day, again, here, um, you know, we're talking about the science, uh, not not mandates uh, or other governmental or political decisions or actions that are that are taken um, for our, uh, in our case, we're in, interested in our own families and friends and others that we come into contact with uh, and, and including our own uh, health and safety. So that's what we talk about here, just to kind of reinforce that again, and because there's also research again showing that, you know, there can be some potential or even documented cardiological effects it looks like of one or more of these vaccines that are being used. And and uh, and again, uh, you know, in the case of the Pfizer the mRNA in the United States, at least uh, these have both gone through rigorous United States testing, multiple stages, one, two and three tiers, um, as well as uh, replication studies and then, and then studies, similar studies around the world. So they're rigorously investigated. Um, and so we're talking about there are have been some cardio effects, um, inflammation and other things I understand from the reading. But um, uh, but that uh, probability for any of us, uh, even though there are categories that are at higher risk, still seems to be dramatically uh, a dramatically lower likelihood of that kind of um, response uh, than compared to COVID-19 infection itself, which. Um, has documented uh, at a much higher rate of probability, much higher rate of any kind of cardio um, effects, uh, whether they're near term or potentially could be longer term. So, you know, what we know is that's why they believe there's always trade-offs um, and we all have that in science. We do that again in criminology if we're trying to protect people or places or both, that we're trying to elevate the friction a little bit, but not too much. We're trying to look for any uh, neutral or positive or negative uh, side effects or you know results of what we're trying to do here to reduce theft, fraud, and, and violence. So same thing, same science, uh, same uh, theory or um, logic models, uh, same research observation methods by and large um, that are occurring in any scientific endeavor. So, um, so I th that's part of the the thinking there on. Uh, what's going on now uh, when we talked about a little bit about antibody and cellular responses, the innate uh, and adaptive immune systems that all of us are gifted with. Um, there's, I was reading a study that J&J &J, 
when it came to the Omicron um, variant, just didn't seem to generate much antibody response. Um, you know, more to come. That's not the only response. Is that meaningful? These are lab tests, my understanding, not necessarily human trials. Um, but to the one uh, injection of J&J may not have the same effectiveness as far as uh, reducing serious disease likelihood. You know, that's what they're thinking and researching or their initial results seem to show. So um, take it for what you will on, on that particular one. Um, we, we hear about the two doses, the initial um, and then the secondary when we're talking about the mRNA vaccines from BioNTech, Pfizer, and the other one from Moderna. And um, and then you, we're hearing about, of course, um, boosters or a third uh, shot and things like that. Um, when it looked at two versus three shots of the mRNA, uh, I saw some studies that were indicating that there is a, um, a 100 times uh, better response and resistance to the Omicron variant uh, than the two-shot series. And so there, there you see where the evidence is showing or indicating anyway that it looks like these boosters can provide more protection for us. Um, but the deal with Omicron is, regardless, even with three injection, injections, excuse me, that there are, we are um, four times more likely to have the Omicron overcome that. So we might get some some disease, may, presumably, and it seems like so far in a lot of the observations, pretty mild to moderate. Um, and, and examples I saw uh, include things like scratchy throat versus severely sore throat. Um, but again, those are just uh, being non-medical professionals here. Those are the things that we're reading. But it does look like 100 uh, times better protection if there are three injections of the mRNA, according to these research data, than um, to. So, and I know that some of us, a team of us that went over to London, we all got our third booster a couple of weeks before departure in an attempt to maybe have more uh, antibodies ready to go, um, as well as more cellular activity potentially come on the way, um, being enclosed for six, eight, 10 hours in um, side of aircraft with who knows who in, in different conditions and so on, or in the tube or other transport. So that was kind of the intent. And just, again, based on trying to objectively look at the science that's out there, you know, again, on this, on the therapy front, Pfizer um, and Merck and others are working on pills. Um, the Pfizer, more data are out and uh, still looks like um, if those in the trial that were that act non-placebo, but actually got the, uh, the treatment that they, if they took the pills within three days of system, uh, excuse me, symptom onset, uh, they they seem to have an 89% uh, protection level against more serious disease um, or hospitalization, uh, or some of the endpoints that they're looking at or outcomes measures that they're looking at. Um, if if the patient wasn't able to or decided to wait till five days after their first symptoms, um, still seem to maintain pretty robust. 88%. Um, these are pretty phenomenal numbers. Again, many, anything over 50% is beyond random normally, right? Uh, so it's probably systematic response, not some random event that we're not sure. Um, and so the, just to give you an idea that these pills hold great promise. I understand the U.S. government is acquiring um, tens of millions of these pills in the anticipation that they might uh, uh, receive full 
uh, and complete approval from the FDA with sign off some CDC and independent um, evaluation teams of um, researchers, physicians, and scientists that are in, that are not in any way, shape, or form involved with the actual development or the profit or anything from the the drug under study. Um, so that's kind of a little bit more about uh, what's going on in the pandemic world for all of us continues to affect us. We all want want to go to be spend more time with our family, with our friends. Um, it's that time of year, holiday, Christmas parties, other uh, events going on around the U.S. and around the world, travel, uh, just being home and so on. Um, those are all things that we're all looking forward to. Conferences, I know that uh, some of our team, we're looking forward to the hopefully the the probability of going to New York City for the NRF National Retail Federation Big Show. Um, we're we're on a panel. Um, some of us uh, around. Uh, we've mentioned this before. I know computer vision, uh, AI, artificial intelligence, uh, camera vision, looking at um, that uh, reducing the probability of errors or theft or fraud, uh, reducing transactional accuracy, and uh, in other words, at the point of sale, self checkout. Let's go that um, wrong scans, uh, intentional or otherwise, or non-scans and so forth are detected by the action models that have been trained to recognize that, that the transaction suspended, that there's video uh, available and can show to the customer what happened or didn't happen or how it happened, um, as well as for the employee on duty um, and so forth. So, uh, this is some testing and, and a massive rollout by the Kroger company um, that uh, uh, Tom Riggi will be talking uh, uh, about. In this case, the research they're doing, our role at the LPRC and at the University of Florida, um, and then also uh, representatives from uh, Alex Cisco's from uh, Everseen, for example. Um, there'll be Lenovo and NVIDIA represented. Uh, and Compass, and so um, we're excited about this opportunity to talk about, to demonstrate, to think about the future of real-world, um, cost-effective AI that just helps identify um, behaviors that are harmful, um, and so uh, in a very non-intrusive way, um, so that the individual can make the the call. So we'll also, as we've talked about before, on that January 19th, if all goes well. Uh, hosted by Bloomingdale's at their flagship store in Manhattan, uh, we'll have the 2022 version of the LPRC kickoff event. Uh, typically, uh, 100 executives in, in, and we're talking about sort of the strategy um, of combining together and connecting uh, within an enterprise to protect uh, against theft, fraud, and violence, uh, and connecting and partnering with other retailers, each other, and then, of course, partnering with uh, law enforcement, but doing these things in a very strategic way, in a very visual way, um, in an evidence-based way. We'll then also have discussion, uh, a lot of brainstorming in the two sessions we'll have, uh, and this will be 8.30 to, to uh, 12.30, 8.30 a.m. to 12.30 on January 19th, um, to attend or participate, and it's about participation. Um, you do need to be an LPRC member and have registered at operations at lpresearch.org. Uh, but we'll be talking about tactical uh, protection research that needs to be done or is being completed um, around, again, preventing different types of theft, different types of fraud, and different types of violence or aggression or intimidation. So we're excited about that. We look forward to seeing everybody. Those uh, LPRC members that are on the board of advisors 
or the LPRC Innovate Advisory Panel, and some working group leaders will be coming into Gainesville again, if all goes well, uh, for the annual LPRC Ignite uh, Summit. And this is our leadership and planning meeting in Gainesville in our lab complex. So again, uh, we need you to register. More details are on the way. We've already gotten a lot of registration. I think we were at uh, at over 80 last night already, by the way, for kickoff. And uh, we've already had a handful uh, register for Ignite, which will be that February 16th timeframe um, in 2022. So want to wish everybody um, happy holidays, safe uh, and happy holidays. And let me go ahead and turn it over to Tony D'Onofrio. Tony, take it away. Thank you for those great updates. Uh, let me start and focus this week on uh, the crime wave that we've seen in terms of the flash mob of flash robs that have taken place in California and some other states with some updates in terms of how the industry is responding. The first update is from MarketWatch, uh, which uh, reported on a letter sent by the CEOs of uh, multiple major retailers to the Congress of the United States. The CEOs from 20 major retail brands, including Target, CVS, and Walgreens, have jointly penned a letter to Congress over concerns of the increasing crime in their stores. As the letter said, as millions of Americans have undoubtedly seen on the news in the recent weeks and months, retail establishments of all kinds have been significantly uh, seen an uptake in organized crime in communities across the nation. The letter reads, while we constantly invest in people, policies, and innovative technology to deter criminals, criminals are capitalizing on the anonymity of the internet and the failure of certain marketplaces to verify their sellers, it continues. This trend has made retail businesses a target of, for increasing theft, hurt legitimate businesses who are forced to compete against unscrupulous sellers and has greatly increased consumer exposure to unsafe and dangerous counterfeit uh, products. 69% of retailers said they have uh, experienced a rise in retail crimes over the past year, according to MarketWatch, as published in the NRF 2021 Retail Security Survey. The survey company cited issues surrounding COVID-19, policing, changes in sentencing, and the huge growth of online marketplaces. So that's uh, how retailers are responding. How are How is law enforcement responding to this um, retail flash mob, uh, rob, theft? And this is a summary from CNN in terms of how law enforcement is trying to stop uh, retail theft. In Chicago, Los Angeles, and other major cities, Police departments are increasing patrols at retailers targeted by mobs of thieves in brazen raids. In Northern California, district attorneys form an alliance to prosecute organized theft rings. At the federal level, the FBI said it is in close contact with local law enforcement investigating such cases and preparing to take further actions. Since this problem is top of mind, I thought this week I would also recap the 2021 Retail Security Survey from NRF, focusing specifically on organized retail crime. So reading from that survey or summarizing from that survey, uh, in 2021, participating retailers said that the pandemic resulted in an increase 
or overall risk in their organization. It, all brought, it also brought new areas of, of prominence as consumers had to find ways of getting products and criminals new channels to exploit. Buy online, pick up in stores, and other multi-channel methods became right targets. This comes as the average loss for shoplifting and robbery incidents has increased. The increasingly risk environment has repercussions that extend well beyond the company's bottom line into actual threats against employees and customers. It is increasingly clear that greater support is needed from lawmakers and law enforcement. Yet, despite the growing dangers from organized retail crime, no federal law prevents this type of activity. That leaves prosecutions, if they do occur, that in a patchwork of local jurisdiction, even though the crimes are typically multi-generational and multi-state. Elpre professional and retailers are not sitting idly by uh, while all these changes occur. They have brought attention to the continued increase in organized retail crime, cybercrime and shootings and other violent incidents in malls and stores. They continue to invest in multiple resources. Half of the respondents said their organization was adding technology resources and capital compared to last year. And a lot more focus is on hiring additional personnel uh, this year. As the long-term impacts of COVID-19 pandemic continue to evolve, one thing is clear, the retail risk environment is more complex and costly than ever. One potential driver behind the increases in robberies and shoplifting incidents is the growth of organized retail crime reported by retailers. As I said earlier, about 69% of retailers said they have seen an increase in organized retail crime activity this past year. They cited reasons such as COVID-19, policing, changes in sending guidelines, and the growth of online marketplaces for the increase in organized retail crime activity. Most alarming, Retailers report these gangs are more aggressive and violent than in years past. Some 65% of respondents noted an increase in violence, while 37% said ORC gangs were much more aggressive than in the past. From comparison, in 2019, only 57% said ORC gangs were more aggressive, and 31% said they were much more aggressive. One area of strong agreement on beyond a doubt, is the, is the need for a federal law against organized retail crime. 78% uh, of retailers felt they will effectively combat these issues in part because ORC is a multi-jurisdictional issue that crosses state line. It is growing in its use because of the broad range of activities. It will be more productive to bring charges at the federal level versus a series of small cases. LP professionals are proactively investing in tools to combat the rise in crime as well as uh, the new risk areas. When compared to previous years, respondents were more likely to say their company was allocating additional resources to address ORC risk this year. Half reported their organization was allocating additional technology resources, and another 50% said they were allocating additional uh, capital specifically to LP equipment. In a shift from last year, there was also a significant increase in those reporting that they would dedicate additional staffing resources. So that's a summary in terms of the organized retail crime survey. 
and also the challenges and how law enforcement and retailers are responding. It's a challenge that we will continue to monitor here at the LPRC and report on in future podcasts. Hello and good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Reed. Uh, man, busy, busy weekend in the cybersecurity and risk space. Uh, and uh, I will say that uh, it was interesting because my daughter's uh, had a birthday party on Friday and we had activities all weekend. So I was more disconnected, uh, disconnected than normal. And then I had a flight to Seattle uh, early yesterday morning and uh, it was a six hour flight. So I got to catch up on all my reading and the internet was of storm for this uh, for this log four J flaw or the, and uh, that occurred uh, sometime last week and when I say that uh, the internet was on fire the it was on fire actually Wired wrote an article that said the internet is on fire that was the that was the title of the article about this vulnerability that was found and for all the listeners on here I'm not going to spend a tremendous amount of time because it, it goes into that space where um, the uh, the folks on the call are generally going to have to work with their IT departments on this. But there was a vulnerability discovered. Um, there was a researcher that in typical kind of zero-day vulnerabilities uh, released it after he reached out to the uh, the overall IT community. And for those of the listeners that don't know what a zero-day vulnerability is, is, it's a vulnerability that wasn't previously discovered uh, and that is discovered. It happens often in software and generally what happens is there's a patch or that and there's a, a level of severity. This is the, the highest level of severity uh, that could be out there. And there was a lot of um, warnings that were issued about patching, but this is not your average patch. And why? Because Log4j is a part of JavaScript and it's been around since the 90s and it's used in just a tremendous amount of open source applications. So this is an interesting one in the sense that this isn't your standard kind of application that like Microsoft Windows has a, a vulnerability you put it in. It is a part of open source code that's used in pro arguably probably hundreds of thousands of software. Uh, one of the scary things about this vulnerability is it's fairly easy for um, hackers and, and criminals to take advantage of. So what we're seeing, what we're seeing yesterday uh, and over the weekend via reports is that the Ch China and Russia scanning you know, millions of systems to try to find this vulnerability and take advantage of it. Uh, you should see on a lot of your devices updates. I couldn't stress to you more than I've ever in the past, the severity of this and how easy it is um, to, to get this vulnerability to go through. And there's thousands of attempts per second by, via bots to go after this. So if you see an update on your Windows machine, on any of your software packages, uh, programs you use, uh, if you see one on your iPhone or anything, just go ahead and, and do the patch. Uh, this is one where you got to do it right away. Uh, because this vulnerability uh, affects the, Java, the JavaScript logging library, and it's, a, it's really an Apache code. So if anybody in here has heard Apache, part of the Apache piece, um, it, it's actually, you know, every minute that you wait to patch this, you, you open the exposure because of the, the scanning. So here's the hard part here. Uh, because this is a, a, a type of code that's used in many, many programs, um, some of them may not be as easy to patch. You know, we, we, we often talk about Internet of Things devices and the importance of buying them from reputable vendors so that if there, if there is an issue that there's a way to patch. This is a perfect example of there's going to be devices out there that just either the company no longer exists or they don't have a method to patch. It's also known as log for shell um, if, you, if you've heard of it. Um, 
that name too. And if you're if you're searching the Twitter or the internet, it really was over there. What it allows to uh, someone to do is have, you know, unauthorized, un, uh, unauthenticated remote code execution uh, in, into your computer. And there are some, uh, there is some evidence, not are some, there is some evidence to support that this could be transmitted via email. So this is still new. We'll keep an eye on it. I know we'll talk about it next, but I want to just, you know, move on to the next one because there's not much more that I can, you can talk about here. So <clears throat> another thing we talk about artificial intelligence often at the LPRC, um, uh, some of the, the, the bigger players, Microsoft, Google, um, you know, uh, I've always been working on this, but Nike, CVS, Walmart, and more are loosening their algorithms, their algorithm biases. So algorithms are, are made by humans. One of the things about machine learning algorithms is, yeah, they learn and they replicate human behavior. Artificial intelligence is just the simplest way to format it is it's a computer mimicking human behavior. So when we talk about artificial intelligence, we always think of these huge kind of robotic and futuristic things. But at the end of the day, artificial intelligence is just the, a computer mimicking human behavior. And I'm not limiting that, how, how important that is. And then when you couple machine learning in, which is a model that's built or an algorithm that's built that continuously learns and changes to adapt to an environment, and I'm oversimplifying this, humans build these. So there are inherently biases built into them. So that what we're seeing is there's this big push and retailers are now jumping on to try to, you know, take the algorithm for workplace decisions or workforce decisions. And specifically, this this report talks about Nike, CVS, Walmart, and others taking this algorithm and changing it um, and trying to loosen the, the bias of it for workforce decisions. This is a, a, a the same thing that happened many years ago. And I, I use this, there's two kind of funny scary, interesting examples. One was a bot that was designed, a chat bot that was designed on the internet. And I believe it was Microsoft. And within a couple hours, the bot was learning um, inappropriate and, and racist comments because the people who were, who were interacting with the bot were trying to teach it that. So the bot picked up on it and started to change, you know, change. And this is the challenge with, um, with true machine learning and artificial intelligence is the bot did exactly what it was supposed to. It listened to what people were saying. It learned the behavior and then repeated it. And then there, the other piece of artificial intelligence was, if you've ever seen, there's hundreds of videos of the, the robot. It's actually a, uh, a robot that is, you know, looks like a female. And they started, <clears throat> reporters started to consistently ask it questions. And the robot answered the questions. But when you heard the, the answers, um, it was a, it was a very, almost unreal response and one of them the the questions from a reporter was you know would you ever, would you ever hurt humans and the response was no i would never hurt humans i'm programmed not to humans are my friends uh, but i don't like water and my goal is to, to eliminate all the water in the world because water is not good for robots so they their their machine learning algorithm someone actually in talking to them kind of kept asking those questions so a lot of these these machine learning algorithms that are out there are based on human biases. And I shouldn't say a lot, all of them, right? Humans are making these. And so it, it, when they're being written, uh, there's some bias as well as they're learning from what's out there. So that's a real good step forward. Uh, we continued over the last few years to see uh, algorithmic challenges from the ACLU, you know, facial recognition, detecting, having, you know, um, not working as well with certain 
races, that's not really a bias, but there are there is this continuous need to drive artificial intelligence and machine learning and help address some of those challenges. So that's actually something that's really, really uh, a good step forward. And then um, <clears throat> I think we'll continue to see there, there was some some conversations over the last two weeks about uh, companies you know, pushing users to adopt two-factor authentication. We talk about two-factor authentication, but then also, uh, and that's, sorry, before I go to the next stage, uh, with two-factor authentication, it that's the point when you're logging in and you're asked to either get a text message or go to an app or a token to get your number. Um, I think you've probably heard me say uh, hundreds, if not more than that times on this, the importance of going to two-factor authentication. My recommendation hasn't changed. I think two-factor is the quickest, easiest line of defense for an average user or even for a business user. My recommendation today is when you can use an app-based versus a SMS-based, that there's a benefit. The thing about an app-based authentication is your it allows you um, to eliminate that that SIM swapping or any of these tech, any of these phone scams that are out there while they require social engineering. But the other advantage of having an app base is when you're on the plane and you can't get a text message or when you're in an area where you have bad service, you can't get a text message there. You have the app. So Google Authenticator, there's a lot of different authentication apps that allow you to use two factor. Uh, it's free, super quick to set up. It's actually the setup is almost exactly the same. Their only risk, if there's any with that phone, is if you lose or damage that phone, you have to make sure that you have your backup codes to get in or it becomes challenging. I've been using app-based authentication really since it's actually come out, its inception. Um, I prefer it more, not not from the, I prefer it more uh, from the standpoint of I travel quite a bit. I don't like to be in a position where I can't get into something um, that via that you need via text message. And I know even when you're on the plane, sometimes the plane, you can get internet, but you can't get text messages. So two-factor authentication, app-based is where to go. But at the next step is there's a lot of conversations about um, actually taking an automated, we talk about AI and machine learning approach to try to do attack two-factor or one-time password. Um, so there are there are some new methodologies for the bad guys to try to go after that. Uh, it's definitely something we all should stay, stay close to, but I, at this point, still believe that two-factor is um, a great line of defense for the, for the average user. I don't believe that it's an end-all tell-all, but it definitely, definitely helps. Um, with that, I'm, I'm going to turn it back over to Reed and Tony. Um, I covered a, a whole bunch of things, and I know that we'll have an update on Log4j probably in the upcoming weeks. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Tom, on all those updates. Tony, uh, fantastic information as well. And uh, um, we're here for you, lpresearch.org. Um, so everybody stay safe and stay in touch. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 